whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Today's episode is a bonus episode. I hope you enjoy it. And please make sure to tune in Monday for a brand new episode of Kara Golden Show. Enjoy. Welcome to From Startup to Grown Up, the podcast. My name is Alyssa Cohn. I'm an executive coach, an angel investor, and the author of From Startup to Grown Up. Each week, I talk to founders, creators, advisors, investors, and builders of all kinds about their insights and experiences in going from startup to grown up. This is episode number 17, and I'm so excited to have Kara Golden on the show. Kara is the CEO and co-founder of Hint, the flavored water company. Prior to that, she was a tech executive and a media executive, and we have this really rich conversation. We talk about what it was like co-founding with her husband, Theo, why she decided to take in outside money after bootstrapping for quite a while, and how she landed John Legend as an investor. 
Kara talks about her ability to improvise, how her lack of experience was her competitive advantage while building Hint, and lessons learned from managing her board. There are so many nuggets here. Please enjoy this conversation with Kara Golden. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And there's so much to talk about, but I want to tell a story. Uh, I want to tell you, talk about a story that you tell in Undaunted, your amazing book, your award-winning book. And it is this, that after you had three kids, you were, you were pregnant with your fourth child. You were on your way to a scheduled C-section. And before, as you were going to your C-section, you stopped by Whole Foods to seal the deal with your first sale to Whole Foods, true or false? This is, tr- this is all true. I was uh, super pregnant. And, um, and basically, uh, I woke up that morning. I didn't have to be at the hospital until that afternoon. And my husband said to me, what do you want to do this morning? I think he was thinking, go to brunch or go on a walk or something. And that's when I said, well, we have these two pallets of hint in the garage that were supposed to be here two weeks ago, and they showed up yesterday. And and uh, I think I'd like to try and get it into Whole Foods before I go have a baby. And I was having a planned C-section. He sort of laughed and said, okay, let's get in the car. And we got in the car and went to Whole Foods. He was nice enough. Uh, he brought a dolly with him, you know, to actually carry cases in. He loaded up 10 cases. This, by the way, he was an intellectual property attorney in Silicon Valley. He wasn't used to loading up cases on a dolly, but he was a good guy. But also your co-founder. Right. Husband, husband and co-founder. Yeah. Exactly. And so we're walking in and, uh, and I see this guy that I had been talking to, but honestly, like hadn't seen him in a couple of months because I was just busy actually trying to launch the product and get it produced. And so when I saw him, I walked up to him and he's stocking shelves at, at the time at Whole Foods. He, I said, hi, do you, do you remember me? And he said, uh, you're really pregnant. And that was the first thing out of his mouth. And I, I said, I, I am. I'm very, very pregnant. And he said, I, are you going to have a baby in the store? And I was like, uh, I hope not. I'm actually on my way to the hospital, but I wanted to stop by and see you and see if we could get my product on the shelf. And he said, you have your product? And I said, okay, well, can we get the product my product hint on the shelf now. And, and, uh, it's really great. Here's some samples. And he said, look, I'll try. I felt like somebody had just popped my balloon at this point. And then suddenly he was like, Oh, I'll try. And it was a big letdown. And then, uh, so I left, I went to the hospital. I, I wasn't sure whether or not I thought, uh, what, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. And then the next day I got a phone call and he was, uh, he said, by the way, um, the product is gone. And I said, like, who took the product? I I had no idea, you know, that it would actually sell. And I think that's a story that resonates so much with people where you think about like getting it on the shelf. How are you going to get on the shelf? What is the product going to look like? What is it going to taste like? But you don't actually think about selling through of the product. I, at least the first time founder. I mean, you you hope that it's going to sell. I certainly didn't. I didn't imagine that it would sell overnight as fast as it did. And so, 
his concern was not only that he was out of product, but he had created space on the shelf at Whole Foods that now was empty and he was going to get in trouble with his boss. So we checked out of the hospital early and, uh, and that's when actually my, my husband said, let me just go deliver some cases. You get some rest. And so he went and delivered some more cases. And I mean, the rest is history. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? 
you can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's an incredible story. And in, in your book, Undaunted, I have to say there's so many beautiful gems of stories like Thank that. You. I just want to call out one more, which is where you talk about um, you, you, you're applying for a job early in your career, like actually your first, probably one of your first jobs. And the people there said no. And you say, but what you heard was maybe. And later they said maybe. And what you heard was yes. And I just love that because that is the entrepreneurial spirit in so many ways. And I'm just curious, were you always like that? Or was that something that you developed in yourself? So I think I was really fortunate that I, of course, I didn't see it back then. But when I was, a, I was the last of five kids and I had brothers and sisters who were significantly older than me. I had a couple that were two and three years older than me, but also 15 and 16 years older than me. So of course, they were doing different things. Like I was in diapers when my brother and sister were in high school, right? And so they were getting jobs and they were doing things. And as time would go on and, you know, I got to the point where I liked to go to the mall and and uh, have money and, and go out, hang out with my friends in Phoenix where I grew up, I would, you know, I'd ask my parents for things that, my brothers and sisters had because they had jobs and I'd ask them for some money and they'd say no. So I was used to hearing that word no all the time. Dad, I want to, mom, dad, I want to go to a party this Friday. No. Like they, they basically were going off of what my brothers, the way they had been and, and uh, they were very fast to say no. And so what I realized is that if I could get my dad or my mom to a maybe, I moved them off of no. And I got him to a maybe. And so I think like that continued for me in a lot of things, right? That I would I would hear people like I was a gymnast growing up and I ran a lot. And so I had coaches and and the same thing where I would hear people talk about, you know, what I was able to do or whether or not I was going to be in a meet, for example. If I heard the word no, I would think, okay. I may not get them to yes, but I'll get them to maybe. Like maybe if you show up, 
you'll be able to do it. And then just the idea that I took that maybe, and then I showed up and I said, you said maybe, and I would remind people about it. They'd say, fine, go ahead, right? Like it's, you show your tenacity, but I think it's also about, it kind of speaks to, to like, you know, reading the room as, as I said too, and I guess we call it empathy, um, as well. And, and, um, you know, more than anything, just really, really understanding, um, kind of human nature of communication to what it really boils down to. And, and so I think I saw that at a young age, but I also, I kind of gamified the system to some extent that I was like, especially if I really wanted to do something. And I think that that was, that's something that is, uh, I think really works in business as well. Totally. I mean, it totally works in business. And I think it definitely it's part of like being an entrepreneur. And I guess, you know, that leads me to the notion of the beverage industry. When you were, um, you know, sort of, you had been a tech executive and you were kind of looking around for what you wanted to do. And of course you had your own personal journey with an understanding of like cutting out sugar and cutting out caffeine and, and also the, you know, the diet, the sort of flavoring from the diet sodas. And that you sort of came to this understanding that you wanted to start a beverage company but you had no experience in beverages. So I'm just curious, like, what was that journey like for you in, in deciding, I'm going to go for it? Like, why would you go for it when you really didn't know what you're getting yourself into? You know, it's interesting. You spoke about, uh, you know, I'd been in tech and, and had done some other things before. And I think for me, I didn't even, first of all, I never dreamed of being a beverage executive. I also, uh, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I, it just wasn't my plan. I started out in media, um, and in New York and, and worked in, uh, magazines and then ended up working in, in television at CNN and then ended up moving to Silicon Valley was with a little startup that was doing early direct to consumer in uh, something called CD-ROMs back in dial-up days. And then we were acquired by America Online and I was running their e-commerce and shopping partnerships. And I took a break and really tried to figure out, do I knew I wanted to stay closer to home. I had young kids and I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do in tech that I people kept reaching out to me and asking me to kind of do America Online 2.0, right? There was Yahoo and there was Microsoft and there were lots of people out there. And I thought, I've already done that. And why would I go compete and try and blow up something that I had just created, right? It was, it was sort of, it seemed really not very normal to me in some way. And so that's when I really started thinking about my children. I was going to take a break. I was going to enjoy being with them. And I started looking at what I was putting into their bodies. I was not very, I guess I wasn't sensitive to it prior to kind of spending some more time at home. Um, I mean, not that they were just, you know, eating bags of Frito at age one or whatever, but you know what I mean? They just weren't, I really hadn't thought about it. I had a lot of trust in what people told me. So for example, when they got off of, you know, breast milk and formula, then people said substitute with apple juice. And I kept thinking that, wow, that's a lot of sugar. I mean, is that really what I want to be doing? And I do my own little tests. Like when I would take my kids to the park, I'd, you know, say like, maybe they have it if they're going to burn off the calories, but otherwise, if I want them to take a nap, 
I mean, that's probably not the greatest idea. So I, again, like kind of gamifying this, this world that I was living in that I wasn't used to living in. And at some point along the way, I, I started reading labels and it really started with my kids, but then it quickly sort of focused or I focused on what I was putting in my body. Cause I thought here I am trying to make my kids and my family super healthy and I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. I was drinking tons of Diet Coke um, since I was in high school. Um, and the reason why I was drinking so much Diet Coke is that I didn't like water. I, d- I aspired to be a water drinker. But for me, drinking water was just super boring. And again, I grew up in Arizona where I should have been drinking a lot more water. And so I, th- I thought I'm going to do this test and see whether or not giving up my diet soda and exchanging it for water does anything. Will it make a difference? Again, it's diet. It's not full-fledged soda. So I really thought I was doing better already. And so two and a half weeks later, first of all, after a few days of not drinking Diet Coke, I had massive headaches. I had huge stomach issues. I, I was really going through my own detox. I just didn't feel well at all. Then I woke up two and a half weeks later and I was like, okay, I'm like not as foggy. I had terrible adult acne that was totally clearing up on its own. I hadn't done anything. I'd never had acne until I was an adult. Um, and also I had lost a bunch of weight. I lost over 20 pounds in two and a half weeks. And at that point I was really like, wow, this is, this is wild. I mean, here I am drinking diet, I give up diet, and all this happens. I mean, this is crazy, except there's one problem. Water is just not going to do it for me for very long. I didn't want to go back to drinking diet soda, but I thought, what do I do to solve this problem? So I started slicing up fruit, and I threw it in the water. And at that point, I thought, okay, this is all I need. I was giving it to my kids. They loved it. I was friends were asking me, you know, what kind of fruit do you have in your water? They'd see it, you know, half a pomegranate in the water. They would ask me, you know, what are you doing? And I thought, well, if there was a water that I could just go buy that was like this, but everything has some kind of sweetener in it. And so I didn't think about launching it until people started saying to me, that'd be so cool. Like I never really realized that everything has so many sweeteners in it. Vitamin water was like the hottest thing on the shelves. This is 17 years ago. And I was shocked at how much sugar was in. They didn't have a diet version, but I was, I was shocked because I thought, you know, there's so many products like for me, it was diet soda. There's vitamin water. There's things that are low fat, kind of healthy perception versus healthy reality products that are out there. And it's kind of sad, right? That we're tricked into believing that things are better for us than they are. Here, I considered myself to be a pretty smart person, and I had been fooled by these words. And so it was at that point when I thought, I'm not doing anything anyway. I mean, I'm being a mom and staying at home with my kids, but I thought, maybe these, like the fruit that I'm putting in the water, maybe I'm onto something. I never thought about it as, I'm I'm going to go be an entrepreneur now. Here I'd worked for incredible entrepreneurs, including uh, Ted Turner and uh, people who had worked for Steve Jobs. I never worked for Steve Jobs, but um, 
you know, AOL with Steve Case as well. I had seen and supported entrepreneurs, but I had never been, you know, I, I had never sort of thought that one day after I support all these people that I'm going to go and launch my own thing. But when I saw this problem, when I saw this idea that I had that could actually help a lot of people just by showing them through a physical product that tastes good, that they can actually get healthier. That was, that's what's really sold me on this concept because I realized that I thought that so many people had been fooled like me. Then I also looked at these industries, they're multi-billion dollar industries, the diet industry, the diet soda industry. And I thought if I could just launch a product that tastes great, little did I know that I had created an entirely new category in the beverage industry called unsweetened flavored water, which is a whole other story. Um, But also just sometimes I think that if you think too much about uh, you know, why you can't do something. I didn't have experience. Uh, you know, I'd never been an entrepreneur. Um, the idea still to this day, if somebody were to tell me, okay, you're not just launching a company, but you're launching an entirely new category. That's daunting, right? Instead, Mm -hmm. don't go there. Just get through every day and keep making progress. That's the most important piece. You know, I just spoke to uh, Sid from True Pill and, and Elon Twig from uh, Trip Actions, and they both yeah. said, if I had known too much about this industry, I wouldn't have done it, you know, because it just totally. it, it would have been too daunting to disrupt the industry. So that healthy naivete and that healthy curiosity that, and then also I think your ability to gamify and your desire and your nature to gamify things sounds like it really helped you, frankly, launch into something you had no business launching into. Totally. And, and I think like, that's the problem. And, you know, I'll even go out on a limb and say the more educated you are, the, uh, you know, smarter you are, it's, uh, definitely where, you know, you're, you're your own worst enemy because you end up being in a place where you convince yourself that you can't do something instead of convincing yourself, okay, I should try. And again, you have to figure out the risks. My dad would always talk to me, about thinking about what's the worst that can happen. Sometimes when I was in my trying to get him from a no to a maybe, he'd say, what's this going to cost me, right? Or what's this, what's this going to cost you when I got a little bit older? Um, but, you know, no matter how you evaluate things, and I think that it's uh, when you ask yourself that question, if the risk isn't that big, whether it's, you know, how much money you're going to spend or, you know, if you're going to die, what are the, what are the odds, right? All of those kind of things, then why not just go do it? Because if nothing else, you just add to your adventure, you add to conquering your fears, you, you add to doing something that you didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I think today, the most interesting people, the most uh, curious people, the the people that actually are the most successful are the people that feared those things along the way, but figured out how to push through. 
Yes, push through and be able to take risks and kind of deal with them. And another risk that you took was you co-founded with your husband. So on the one hand, there's like something really great in that. And there are a lot of successful models of co-founding with your romantic partners. Uh, and then on the other hand, that's just risky. There's something else to say. So what was the greatest part of that? And what was the most difficult? What has been the, a great part of that? And what has been a, a most difficult part of that? You know, for us, I always tell people, Another one, I never really thought much about it. I think more than anything, as I was coming up with this idea, I I wanted to share it with my husband because, you know, we live in California. We have joint bank account. I, I mean, I didn't feel very comfortable like writing a check for $50,000 for bottles. I was, I feared that he'd think that I was going on a girl's weekend to Jamaica or something with friends. Like he wouldn't know what I was doing. And little did he know that I had kind of written a business, a mini business plan. Um, and, uh, and then I also found out that I was pregnant with our fourth as I'm writing this. And I thought, okay, do I actually do this company or, well, what else am I doing? I'm like waiting for, you know, the, the baby to bake. Right. And, and so I, like, why not? Why don't I start getting through it? And, and I think what he saw which I think is, you know, incredible um, still to this day, is that he saw that this was a really big idea. He thought it was crazy on many fronts. I think we've always had this relationship where he doesn't hold back on saying, I think that's a really bad idea or, you know, that seems really nutty. I hope you have fun. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of been our, you know, our, our relationship over over the years the net of it is we're very different people and I think very different skill sets. And so as a, as somebody who joined me in the company, I think he initially felt like it was crazy. And then when he went to the plant with me, our first plant, I think he got the bug and he really realized that this was like a bigger idea to actually change people's health, help people get off of diet sweeteners when most people were really focused on sugar. And what the body, you know, did with sugar. My feeling was that people get that. They understand. They're not supposed to have sugar. People don't have 10 candy bars a day, right? Most people don't. Um, but it's these diet sweeteners that I, I really saw the, the problem probably ahead of other people. Now, I think that it wasn't that he didn't recognize that it wasn't hard and he didn't, he recognized also that it was, you know, a big idea. But while I was trying to figure out whether or not I was going to, you know, go back to tech or, you know, stop this crazy idea, he also said, let me work alongside you. I think he probably thought, I'm going to get her to like quit. I'm going to make her realize that this is a really bad idea. And, uh, you know, he was an intellectual property attorney. And, and as I mentioned earlier, and, and instead, you know, he said, how can I, like, can I, deliver cases for you. I mean, again, here we are. I'm, you know, don't have a job. He's kind of on, he's in between. He had left Netscape. And, and so we have these four kids and it was kind of divide and conquer mentality for young kids under the age of six. And so, um, you know, some days I was watching the kids. He said, oh, let me just load up the cases and then I'll drive them over there. And it was fine. And then as the company got bigger too, I mean, actually having a general counsel as a young company, I mean, he was uh, definitely able to help 
on that front. But also, I think his curiosity, prior to going to law school, he was he had worked in a lab. He thought he was going to go to med school. Like he was always really interested in sort of more the science side. Um, and here I was saying, okay, it's really easy. We fruit and water and no preservatives. And he was like, okay, that's really hard. People were saying it was impossible to do it. Again, going back to this whole gamify thing, where when I hear no, when I hear it's impossible, I'm like. How do you know it's impossible? Well, no one's ever done it before. Okay. Well, so is it really impossible or does it really mean that no one's ever done it before? So going back to, I guess, my early days, all those kind of things all seem the same to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, Kara here. We are thrilled you are listening with us and I hope you're enjoying this episode. I've had the pleasure of interviewing so many amazing guests over the past few years, and there are so many more to come. I cannot wait. And my focus is on entrepreneurs and CEOs, real innovators and leaders who are making a difference. That's what I'm looking forward to bringing you. One of the reasons I enjoy interviewing many of my guests is that I get to learn. We all need to hear stories that teach us to be better, inspire us, and help us get through those challenging moments. I can't remember the last time I had a guest that didn't leave me feeling like a major hurdle had been overcome. We just don't hear these stories enough. And when we do, we learn to be smarter and stronger. Don't you agree? Episodes are concise but packed with amazing info that you will surely be inspired by. Do me a favor and send me a DM and tell me what you think about each interview that you get a chance to be inspired by. And if you are so inclined, please leave one of those five-star reviews for The Kara Golden Show on one of your favorite podcast platforms as well. Reviews really, really help. Now, let's get back to this episode. It's funny that he joined you in the business a little bit, like to get you from a yes to a maybe and from a maybe to a no, but it totally. didn't work that way. It it's it's that interesting way. that it's interesting that you say that. But yeah. um, you know, I remember one of the things, this is a really fun story, when we were first starting out and uh we were I was asked to speak um at this conference as to sort of why did you go from tech to starting a beverage company? And at the last minute they said uh, would would your husband, who's you know, chief operating officer, co-founder, would he, can we interview both of you guys? And I was like, together, like at the same time. I mean, uh, I'll ask him. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, he's used he's used to kind of not being on the front. I mean, front lines of of you know being interviewed. But I mean, probably I don't know. Like I didn't know what to say. And so I asked him and he said, okay. And I asked for questions ahead of time. They said, gave me some questions. Well, anyway, the fr- I get, we get on stage. This goes to show you, like, you just kind of have to be ready for whatever, even when people hand you questions. Um, but the first question that they asked us was really pointed at him. They said, what's it like to work for your wife? What did he say? Right? Like, you know, I mean, it's just, I didn't know. I mean, I had never thought about that question, but obviously this person who was, you know, the moderator was really interested in that. And he, I mean, he was so funny. Theo's like a Seinfeld 
uh, character and uh, like Jerry Seinfeld. And he said, don't we all work for women? I mean, and he and he went on on this like dialogue and people were dying. And he said, I mean, I have two young girls and they're really young right now, but my expectations are that I'll always want to make sure that they're happy. He said, for me, I mean, I saw this idea that she had that actually could have impact on a lot of people. And she's ahead of her time. She's creating not only a company, but also an entirely new category. And I get it. And probably not a lot of people get it yet because people didn't really see the problem in diet sweeteners like I did. And he said, so I want to support her. And he said, but having said that, when we're done with Hint, I mean, will I be a CEO? Will I, will she support me? Maybe. I don't know. But I think at the end of the day, it really, it's less about gender. And for him, it, he said, it's more about, is it a great idea? Can I actually support? He, he got like a standing ovation. I mean, it was... Mm. And and again, I was like, okay, I can leave the stage now, and <laughs> like we're all good. And uh, and it was it was an awesome, awesome speech. That is amazing, and speaks volumes. I think about kind of him and his attitude, and, and your relationship overall. Even this notion of like, don't you want to support your spouse? I mean, thinking about it that way. But I am curious. I would just say that I know spouses and romantic partners who work together one way or the other. And in some cases, it changes their relationship. It's hard to know when to cut off work. It can kind of bring tension. It can also bring, be very joyful because I, I spoke to, um, for my book from Startup to Grown Up, I spoke to Michelle Romanow, mm-hmm. who co-founded ClearCo with her romantic, her then romantic partner. And she said, when he was on his phone the whole time, I liked that because he was handling crises that I didn't have to handle. So that's a different way of looking for your, you know, your partner on the phone. I'm just curious what it, what it brought in terms of goodness to your relationship and if there were any tensions that you had to navigate through. Look, I think also when you have somebody that you really trust in the room and, you know, people would ask us over time, how do you divide? And it seems I'm much more, my experience is much more about the customer and about the marketing and about the branding and obviously had direct consumer experience, all of that versus he was really about how do we improve? How do we, I mean, really supply chain operations. It was very easy for us. Having said that, he was used to me asking, well, why would you do that? Imagine if you are two co-founders. Maybe you guys went to business school together. You like each other. All of a sudden, you start a company. And then somebody's saying, well, why would you do that? I don't even think twice about him saying, why would you do that? And because I asked the same thing, like, why would you do that? And, and again, I'm not judging, right? Yet, if you don't know that person really, really well, um, then it might be difficult. Another, you know, great example is as we had four kids under the age of six, there were certain days we'd get a call from the nurse's office and, you know, one of us would need to go to school and pick them up. And again, what if you're, you know, two co-founders and one has kids, one doesn't have kids, right? And all of a sudden there starts to be this, you know, well, who's really doing this kind of, who's doing this company? 
And I mean, that happens all the time. And I think for us, it was really about our priorities are family and work. And we have a mission to solve and help people understand that it is possible to get healthy through changing this habit. And we both really, really believed it. And so there was, there was like, it just seemed super normal. I think it was more abnormal for other people. Um, I remember this one other story. There's so many stories along the way where we were raising money early on and there was a, a VC firm that had reached out to us. They loved our product. They drank it all the time. And uh, they called my husband and sort of the final hours, they were making a decision and looked through everything. And they said, you know, we have one problem with doing this deal. And he said, what's that? And he said, you know, we just find like investing in married couples is just a really bad idea. And it had never come up before this moment. And, uh, and he said, you know, like, how do you guys make decisions about things? I mean, like, I mean, I get that you guys have different skill sets, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, he said, so Theo said something really smart. He said, so I'm, it's interesting. Like who have you invested in a, a married couple that, you know, where it hasn't worked out? Um, and he said, well, we haven't. And he said, oh, well, so what are you thinking about? Like, who are the married people that you've invested in or not invested in that you have read about, listened to their pod, listened to them on podcast, whatever, where, what is the problem? And um, he's like, well, I can't think of any right now. <laughs> and this is a major VC and a major partner. And he said, okay, so why, why are you worried? Yeah. And he said, well, I've just heard like, it's a really, it's a really bad idea. And so in the end, there's two stories there. One, you know, he, he didn't know what he was saying. He had picked up on something and sort of had this idea in his head that it was a bad idea. Right. But then the other piece of it is people tell you that they're not investing for lots of different reasons. Right. And you never really know if that was really the reason. Like if he even remembers to this day saying this to Theo, right? I mean, he could have just really like, maybe he doesn't invest in women with red hair or I don't know. Maybe yeah, or even like, like with Tam, who knows, right? right. But then but the people latch onto something that they want right, to say. They latch onto something because they know that you can't respond to it and it's their exit, right? Yeah. From this conversation. And once you know that, then it's, you know, you're just like, oh, whatever. And you have to move on. And I think that that is, that's just another story along the journey that I think there's a lot of lessons from that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, on that topic, you know, you bootstrapped Hint for quite a while, and then you decided to take in some money. What was that? Why did you decide to take in some money? And what was the process like for you to meet the right investors? So, we it was in, it was interesting like the first couple of years we did not take in any capital and i primarily didn't take in capital because we didn't know what we were doing i mean at all like it was very we, i figured out 
in the first month that we were not just launching a company, but we were launching an entirely new category. But then I felt like, and primarily Whole Foods, love Whole Foods, but the Whole Foods, like we launched there, it was being successful there. But every time I felt like I was gaining success, they'd raise the bar. I'd say, you know, we went in with a two month shelf life and then they'd say, okay, I'd almost duck from the buyers when I would, you know, be in the store because they'd say, okay, next time we get an order, we need product that has six months. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. I mean, we, we are so lucky to have a product that is no preservatives at two months. So I don't even know. So they were, they were basically raising the bar and I had no idea how I was going to be able to achieve what they wanted, I guess is the net of it. Plus, they were saying things that really scared me. Like, we're in the Bay Area, but they were like, oh, would you like to be in the Denver stores? And I'm thinking, that's a long drive from from San Francisco and my Grand Cherokee to Denver. How am I going to achieve this? Like, where would I get a truck from in order to do that and have somebody drive? I didn't know about distributors. I mean, I knew there were distributors, but I didn't have their phone number or their email. And so there were so many things along the way that I had to figure out how do we, you know, get there. And I think the the other thing is that you have to understand is that uh, I had, you know, grown up in media and tech. I didn't have experience in CPG. So when I asked the guy at Whole Foods, hey, can you give me the, a phone number for a distributor? Maybe he would give me the phone number for a distributor. But then when the distributor, they wanted to figure out if I was a risk. Like here I had this idea for a product in a very crowded space, but also in a category that wasn't totally accepted by everybody yet. It was accepted by Whole Foods, but Safeway and other sort of conventional grocery stores weren't taking it in yet. And so I just, more than anything, I just felt like, you know, there were so many things that I just didn't know. So why should I take investment until I should invest my own money? And I was also hearing from a lot of people in Silicon Valley that were friends of mine from tech. They were like, oh, wait, what are you doing? Oh, let me angel invest in your company. And I'm like, I don't, I still want to go to dinner with you. I don't want you asking me, you know, what's going on with the business and whatever. So after two years where I basically at this point figured out that we had kind of figured things out, I thought it, it's time to start taking some of these investments and getting some people in there. And so we had a, a distributor actually uh, who still works with us today um, that was had been actually on the board of Vitamin Water, a guy named Ken Sadowski. And so he had said to us that uh, if you guys are ever looking for an investment, I'd be interested in investing and I can also introduce you to some people. And so that seemed like, okay, let's go figure out if if he's the real deal or not. He's obviously worked in the beverage industry. He's way ahead of us. And so he introduced us to our first investors, coupled with there were people in Silicon Valley who, you know, knew us, who um, thought that this mission of getting off of sugar and sweeteners was right on. And, uh, and so those were the early people who invested. 
Mm. It, it sounds like the early investors are people that one way or the other you had worked with or like, <sighs> like Ken, or that also you knew from your background. So it's, you know, relationships really matter when you're kind of thinking, because you know who these people are and they know who you are. Relationships totally matter. And I think that the mission mattered yeah, a lot. Yeah, mission alignment. Most of these people, I still am thinking about it as, as I'm talking to you, most of these people who invested had never invested in a beverage company. And most of them haven't invested in another beverage company. Um, you know, in the case of John Legend, for example, when he invested, it was interesting because we were in Starbucks and Hint was in Starbucks and he found it in Starbucks. And it was, um, he just called the number on the back of the bottle because he thought it was so good. And yet he wondered if the big soda companies had, if they were launching, you know, a product that it, it seemed counter to what he expected um, from those big soda companies. And so when I picked up the phone and said, no, 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 it's not a Coke or a Pepsi company, it's, um, you know, I started it and, and, uh, and I think like for him, it, you know, John, of course, has, has some things that are really close to his heart and big, and this is even before his career had taken off to what it is today. But for him, he really believed that it had purpose and it had mission and it, and he, I think today, to this day would say that he believed in me. Right. Mm -hmm. And he believed mm -hmm. that it was so crazy that and you need somebody who's a little crazy to go and take this risk and do something and he was backing me plus he liked the drink so it it helped him drink water so right right so in in all of that and you know in your 17 year journey what have you learned about managing your board managing the board well so we didn't have a board until we took that first in, investment and right. so uh Ken Zadowski, um, who I mentioned, whose uh, grandfather had owned a distributorship um, in in uh, Massachusetts, uh, introduced us to the Stella Beer family, and they actually had a family office um, out of Brussels, and they were um, they were interested in investing in in non alcoholic beverages outside of Europe, so they had invested. Uh, actually, Ken knew them because they had invested in vitamin water, and now they were looking to invest in some other beverage brands. And so we met with them, and they loved the drink. They loved the fact that uh, it was different than vitamin water. Vitamin water had just sold to Coca-Cola, actually. And so, I mean, that was really, at the time, I mean, it, it just seemed like a natural fit you know, it's interesting because now I look at it today that beer or wine versus like, you know, a flavored water, very, very different. But again, when you're first starting out, you think beverages are beverages close enough, wet, right? Wet is wet, right? Yeah, what exactly. And so uh, they invested and really the, the biggest thing I remember from that meeting, I mean, that they had invested 5 million into the brand, which was amazing. Like we were so excited to do that investment. The, the most important thing that I remember, there was a guy named Fred Reek who was actually part of the Stella family and he had worked um, in the company and uh, operator. So he wasn't a traditional like 
private equity or or finance person making investments. I mean, he actually understood um, about a lot of the beverage industry, at least the beer industry. And so he made it really clear to us. And I think it really speaks to there's just different types of investors, not only private equity versus venture versus family offices versus angel investors. But he said, you guys need a board, obviously, because you have shareholders now. Um, But he was very clear that he was going to be very hands off. And so, you know, they, he lived in Brussels. He didn't have anybody in the U S so there wasn't really, don't be counting on, you know, the Stella name to kind of help you in some way, because, you know, they, that just wasn't sort of in the card. So I think that over time, um, you know, I think like the one lesson that I think I've learned along the way too, with all investors is that, there are there is a big difference between a family office and between a private equity and between you know how they view themselves um, and what they invest in and I think that while they don't still to this day their name is Verlinvest um, they now own fifty one percent of Anheuser Busch um, and and again we were before Anheuser Busch before they had invested in that I think it's it, it's important to know that as companies get bigger as funds get bigger um while they don't have a this fund has to be liquidated in 5 years sort of thing they actually um invest their dividends from anheuser busch it's definitely as the funds get bigger you know they get more people uh a lot of things you know the pressures are different i think so you have to be just aware and um and then i think also as people retire and they leave and people come in, they weren't in the room, right? When the investment was made. And so it's really important, I think, when you're putting your board together to make sure that you not only have the right people who are committed to the mission of the company in your boardroom, but also I would say people who are not just investors. It's really important. Yeah. And also to your point about as people kind of maybe roll on, you know, new people come and get involved. I have to assume that it's also super important to educate them about the history of your relationship with, you know, the family or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's hard, frankly. And because I think it's, it's hard for people to understand, and especially if they're hearing different things, if if people in their firm have left and and you know it's sort of like a telephone tag type of thing, I think it's it's you know it's it's really tough. So I think like in building a board, the the biggest thing that I would say is make sure from the beginning that you know you've got the right contract, you've set up the company in a way where I mean I I think the value of independent board people cannot be overrated. Um, it's something that I have not done in building the board, um, which it, which is, you know, something that I would share with entrepreneurs and, and uh, something I would always leave room for that. It doesn't mean, for example, when you're setting up a board, you know, maybe you think, okay, I'm always going to have, you know, three seats on the board or 
that's what I'm starting out. And maybe you're giving investors like two seats. Have the option to actually put two independent board directors in there. Um, Because people who are not, they don't have, they don't, they're not invested in the company. I mean, it's not to say that you wouldn't pay them um, to, to actually be on your board, but they, they will think differently. And people who have experience, people who bring in, um, definitely believe in the mission and believe in the product. But when you don't have those people, what you have is creators versus bankers. Mm, yeah, right? that's well said. Yeah, and And I think it's, and again, it doesn't mean that everybody's wrong. It just means that their brains are kind of thinking differently about things. And I think that it's, you know, I think that's the most important thing. And when you bring in independents who are people that you both decide that should be in the room because they're actually going to grow the business, they're going to look at what's in the best interests of shareholders overall, that is really, really key. And unfortunately, if you don't set up your company that way in the beginning, then it's hard. It's hard to add those people. It's not impossible. Um, and obviously, when you're a public company, you have to add independence. Um, and there's a reason for it. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. Absolutely. So you all had have really had this incredible success. And I, I know it has to do with also building a team and making sure you have the right people. I'm curious, could you take us back to like one your an early, let's say an early senior hire? What was it like for you to hire kind of one of your early senior people? And what did you think about? What was that transition like? Because, you know, at some point it goes from you and Theo to probably a few employees, but then you you bring on more senior people, that becomes a real company. What was that like? I think first of all, I, I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday that you know, obviously really important when you're bringing somebody on um, because you've been doing the job. On the one hand, you really like people to help you, um, but your expectations, right, are you've been doing the job. And so you, uh, you know, you sort of have opinions. And I think you have to let people do it their way, right? To some extent, you have to train them and sort of hand them what you know, or what you think you know. But I made a huge mistake early on by thinking because I didn't have experience. I sort of, um, I, I didn't give myself enough credit, right, for being able to figure stuff out. And we hired and spent a lot of money early on in hiring experience, right? And what I found about experience is experience in an industry is very different from finding somebody who's experienced in growing a company from zero to a million or, you know, 5 million or growing from 20 million to 50 million. And so I think that that is like a really, really important thing to remember that so often if you're working inside of a large company, it's really hard to get that experience. uh, And you, you'll say that you know how to do it. You were at a big company and whatever, but it, the reality is, is that you don't, right? Um, one of my best 
examples was I remember when I was launching Hint and I mentioned Safeway earlier, my dad had launched a product called Healthy Choice or as a part of Armor Food Company. They had been acquired by ConAgra. And so I figured, well, he'll know how to like get our product into Safeway, even though it's a different category. It's frozen food. It's not very far away from, you know, beverages and how that's done. And so I asked him like, oh, how do I, how do I do it? And he said, I have no idea. I mean, I worked inside of a large company and that's what happens with large companies is they have a big contract, maybe frozen food and some other parts of the store. And so the space is already allocated. And so when you hire these experienced people, a lot of them don't know that because they've, they've basically been, you know, invited in versus actually asking for, you know, the meeting kind of thing. So I think there's, there's a lot of lessons there, um, early on. So we made, we made a lot of mistakes early on and sort of hiring for experience. The other thing that I've learned too, is that I remember the first person who quit. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've like failed. Right. And here they, right. Do you, I mean, yeah, it's true. You hold it against yourself. You think seen it coming, you know, they're leaving me because I suck, you know, my product sucks, whatever. And what I realized is that people really know themselves. There are certain people that love that zero to 1 million stage and they'll go and they'll hop from those jobs and that's what they do. And you can say they're not loyal. You can say all this stuff, but whatever, move on. It's not you. It's like what they do. And I think that that's a really, really important, you know, piece for, for people to remember because people won't stay with you forever. And I think that it kind of goes to this point about hiring people that I think people are confused by, especially in your first startup. You know, it's just, it's people through every stage, they're not going to, um, they, they may not be the right people. It's very rare that somebody stays with you um, in, in multiple stages. We actually have a handful of those people in Hint um, that have been you know with us nine years, 13 years. I mean, it's a long time, and, uh, but certainly it's, it's not very common. Right. It's not very common. And to your point, it's like different people are the right employee for different stages. And I think for a first-time founder in particular, that could just be jarring. Because when they leave, to your point, they, you know, you've, you can't take it personally and what, what have I done and it must suck and it's terrible. But also, what if everybody else leaves? And there's a sort of recurring fantasy of like, oh, is everybody going to leave now? And so yeah. I think it takes time to adjust to an understanding that different people are the right people for your different stage of your business. Yeah. And I, I remember something else when I was working at CNN that Ted Turner said that still like sits in my head, like... He always said when people announce that they're leaving, let them go. Never save a person. I tell managers this all the time because, you know, what he made me realize is that people will be thinking about this. There's a lot more that happens before they actually tell you that they're leaving. So they've interviewed. There's a lot going on that they didn't share with you. And they thought about things and 
you know, for whatever reason, they felt like this was a better opportunity for them. So when you go in and you actually say you give them more money or you try and convince them to, to actually stay. And when that happens and you do, the chances of them actually staying long term are very low. And often they're actually, maybe they'll entertain you by um, having this conversation with you, but then they'll use, you know, the additional money to go to their new employer and actually say, well, I want to do this. And that's the way that game works. And I think like I can count on a couple of fingers where we've actually broken that rule and it's never worked. And, and, and it really, and I always go back to, you know, what Ted Turner used to say at CNN, like you announce that you're leaving, like plan on leaving right. because you're not getting another opportunity. And I think he's, I, I think it's a really smart thing. And it's something that people need to, because again, you sit there and think, oh my God, I trained this person for so long. What if they leave? And I think there's, there's another lesson that I've learned too is, and something I'm probably not great at still to this day is that if you see some negativity that's going on in your organization, maybe, you know, you've lost trust in this person or whatever as well. Uh, like you actually need to cut bait on, on that relationship because it rarely gets better. And what it does, to your point earlier, what the big fear is, is that what if one person leaves, then other people leave? You allow a person to sit around for a while who maybe has, you know, a negative opinion or a bad experience of some sort. And it really is like poison. And it, and it, the person can be a good person. They just cannot actually think straight for whatever reason. So it's better for you just to, cut the cord. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, I would say that really 201, the founders have that I talk to, that I deal with, that I coach, all kind of learn that by the time you know you should fire someone, it's probably way, it's Too usually late. way late, right? It's yeah. like you're late in the game and everybody kind of is already waiting for you to do something. It's a hard, it's one of the hardest lessons I think for all founders to learn and really for all leaders to learn. It's just yeah. a difficult thing. It's yeah. so difficult and it's, and you know, there's never a good time, right? right? And I mean, there's never a good time. It always happens at a time when you're like, uh, but, but I think it, it's also something that I've learned that I share with fellow CEOs and entrepreneurs. And I think it's easier when you're an entrepreneur and you've sort of, we're doing all the different jobs in the company. It like having that ability to step in when you need to, whether, you know, it's a on direct to consumer or SEO or customer service or whatever, and actually knowing what the job entails when you need to hire somebody um, is is really really important because yeah. you can be helpful to your team. I think that the other lesson that I learned when I was uh, working at AOL actually was my boss, this guy Meyer Burlow. Um, was uh, he would always have people in his office and he was always interviewing. And we didn't have any roles that, I mean, for a while he was interviewing and, you know, because we had lots of roles that he was trying to fill. But I mean, he was always interviewing and we always were like, why is he interviewing? I mean, is he interviewing for my job? I know that that person who walked in 
actually is, you know, kind of has that skill set or whatever. And he said something to me that still rings true um, to this day, or great words of advice is that you never know when people are going to leave. One day I actually said to Meyer, are you interviewing for my job? I was the VP of e-commerce and, and shopping partnerships. And uh, he said, I interview all the time. And I said, I know you interview all the time, but are you interviewing somebody for my job? And he said, no, but I never know when you're going to quit. And I never know what anyone's going to do, you know, and, and, or when we'll need people. And so always having options. And I think that that's an important lesson that I use actually for customers, for suppliers as well, because if you don't have options, then when something happens that you're surprised by, um, and things aren't going well or whatever, then, you know, you feel like you're, you're in defense, right? You're, you're definitely trying to, uh, keep your head above water, all of those things. But if you know a few people that a few companies, suppliers, whatever, you know, that you can reach out to, then you don't feel so stuck. And I think it's the same with people that when you're constantly interviewing um, it, and you don't have something right now, but you know, when you need somebody knowing that you had interviewed somebody is really, it, it, it's a good thing to do. It's reassuring. It's just reassuring to know that yeah. there, there are options out there. And you also know what talent is out there too. Right. And, you know, maybe you also know what you're doing wrong. Right. right. And, and like, you're learning from people what, they do, what their expectations are. So I've just found that it's an important part of growing a company as well. And again, I use that for suppliers. I use that for customers. I use it for employees as well. So I think it's it's a really important... It, and investors, by the way. I think always being you know, open to having... Scheduling yourself a percentage of your time to always be thinking about, okay, this is an area where... I don't really have options um, that I should have options right? or I want to learn a little bit more about an industry or, um, you know, I think that's important because a lot of time people are like, oh, we're not hiring. So, you know, we, we shouldn't actually be interviewing people, but I think it's an important thing to do. Yes. Very wise. Very, very wise. Um, you know, I'm curious, you've talked a lot also, you know, we, your book is called Undaunted. You've talked about being undaunted and the way you kind of gamify things. Amazing. Um, have you ever experienced imposter syndrome or severe self-doubt? Of course. I think that there's there's a few things, um, maybe to some extent I, I gamify that as well. Like I think about things like what's the worst that can happen? Um, along the way. And, you know, because you do, you run into people that you think they're doing better than I am. I was actually sharing the story with an entrepreneur uh, in the, in uh, the beverage industry yesterday, where I said, I remember when Hint was just starting out and there were, again, I'm in it. I, I'm at the trade shows. I'm in the stores. I'm like watching everything. I'm at distributors. There's all these people that they have better wrap around their, they have more stores. They, um, they have better shirts. Like, you know, they have it together. The number of people 
that I have seen like that. And then next year they're gone. They're out of business. I mean, we, we still joke about, about it. Like, you know, there's so many along the way. And so, and it's really hard for you to tell because, you know, you think, oh, they've got it all together, right? They were like this and this and this and, and, uh, and, and then they were gone, poof, right? And so I think that you have to recognize that you never really know what's going on. It's like a happy, you know, happy marriage, right? Then you hear later on, you're like, whoa, I thought everything was fine. I mean, this is, this is crazy. You never really know what's going on. And so whenever I feel like I, that sneaks in on me, I think that that's an important thing for me to go back to. Again, it's, you know, you never really know what's going on. And I think it's also stop focusing on what you can't control and do the best job that you can do has always been something that has worked for me. Because when I get caught up in a competition or somebody's doing better than me or they're way ahead and, you know, it's unfair in some way. Instead, when I focus on just continuing to move myself, move my company forward, um, continuing to do better in some way, then it, it kind of s- resolves itself. But at everyone's lying. If, if you ever hear somebody say that they never got an imposter syndrome, they, you know, they never felt inadequate in some way. Um, and, and I think that there is one thing that I would say that I often think is really important when, when you have those people that are f- around you, that are feeding you, um, that like insecurity, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, totally ghost them or whatever, but I, but it's a, I think you just have to make sure that you manage it properly because, right? Like if people are, I, my mom used to say this all the time, like when, when you actually tell people your problem, right? The next time they see you, especially people you like a lot, the next time they see, oh, how's it going? You know, and, you know, because it's, they want, they care, right? And they, versus actually, if you want to get out of the situation, you don't want to feel insecure about it. It's not that you don't talk about things, but you have to surround yourself with more people that maybe are going to be helpful, that maybe they're going to, you know, help you get out versus keeping you in. Right, right. And and that they're uplifting and that they're bringing you nourishing, you know, kind of content and not just kind of recycled, you know, neg- negative content or, or kind of continuing to recycle a story that doesn't help you, that doesn't serve No, you. it's not helping you. And I think, you know, even starting a company, I think that so many people talk about the loneliness of being an entrepreneur and, and you know, the imposter syndrome and all the things, check like who you're surrounding yourself with. Because if you're sitting there head down, you're in your company, you're with your co-founder only, you go back and you call your parents or whoever you, your, your best friend, you know, they're going to be focusing on the things that they think you care about, right? That may, and I think oftentimes you need to sort of get out there, surround yourself with so, somebody, people that don't really know what's going on or whatever that might 
And maybe people hear your story along the way and they're helpful, but surround yourself with helpers, I guess, especially during, during that time. I love that. That's good. Words to live by. Surround yourself with helpers. So just a few more questions, Kara. I'm curious, what do you wish you had known earlier on your journey? I always used to think that, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, but experience, right? And I think that, you know, the more experience you have, um, you know, the the higher you get up in an organization, uh, you know, that defines you. And I think today, and I think it's sort of coupled, I've thought a lot about this because I think it's sort of coupled with people also trying to figure out who they are, maybe a little bit more too. But uh, just because you're a VP in a company or a CEO of a company, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're wiser. It doesn't mean that uh, you can't be learning. In fact, I actually encourage people to always like, be thinking about what else can I be learning and always look for those opportunities. Because I think the what I've seen in my journey is that the more experienced people are, when they stop learning, when they actually have said too many times that they're, you know, this high level, they have all this experience, whatever, they're actually not very happy. And I think that to the happier you are, the the more likely you are to be able to have a longer journey. And I think that that I didn't know that. I don't think they teach that in school. I think they teach it in that what they teach in in school is, you know, you're an engineer, you're a marketer, you're uh, a tech executive, you're an entrepreneur, whatever it is, versus actually figuring out what people enjoy now. And, and again, you can change your mind. Um, you've changed your mind, right, over time. And I think most Certainly. interesting people that I know have actually changed their mind. And yet, that's not like really encouraged in school. That's not, um, I don't know, I, I just feel like that conversation is not really happening. And yet, I wish I certainly didn't know that. And I didn't know that I was going to be you know, in media and then in tech and then an entrepreneur in the beverage industry. I mean, it's sort of, if I heard that somebody had done that, I'd think, wait, how did you get there? Like what, what, how did that happen along the way? But more importantly, the reason why I did what I did all along the way is that I was curious. I was constantly learning. I felt like I was solving puzzles along the way. I enjoyed it. All of those things, I I think titles to this day are silly. Um, you know, I think it's more about responsibility um, than actual title. Fine if you need a title in order to sort of identify what people do if they're a manager versus not a manager. But I think that so often people get caught up in the seniority of it and of having a certain title and 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 also people fear those people. I mean, too, they feel like, oh, I can't reach out to somebody who's a certain title because they're too, they're too important. And I think that that is the wrong attitude to have for people that you just have to, you know, you just have to sort of f- pretend that they're not CEOs of companies or whatever. 
Yeah, that's really well said. Absolutely. You know, my last question is this. What advice do you have for other founders as they embark on their own journeys to grow into leaders? Well, I I touched on this just now. I think always be learning. And um, I think that the best leaders are people who uh, really, really think that they still have a lot to learn. Um, and that they're empathetic. They, um, they are willing to roll up their sleeves and, and get involved and, and be human. And then I think also we've definitely seen this throughout the pandemic. I think that the best leaders clearly are the people who kind of encompass all of those things and also are willing to kind of share who they are right? That they're not perfect and that they have ups and downs along the way. They've had fears. Um, but the key thing that I've seen is that they figure out as leaders, um, how do they continue moving forward? I think integrity is something that, uh, you can never, you know, undervalue integrity because I think still to this day, um, you'll be found out if you don't have integrity. And I think that that is something that is really hard to, to kind of wipe away in some way and, and for people to forget as well. That I think it's a, it's a trait that people, if you don't have integrity, I think it's something that, you know, is carried with you for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that always be sure as a founder, as a leader, um, to do things that are right. Don't be afraid to speak up. Um, and you know, you'll have haters along the way, um, that people might want you to do things differently. Um, but keeping integrity at the top of your list is, is really the way to go. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Kara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Kara Golden, author of Undaunted, founder of Hint. So go pick up some Hint and go pick up some Undaunted, the wonderful book, and follow Kara on LinkedIn. Um, Really great to spend time with you. Thank you so much. So fun. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, But achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.